Matt preached a state of the church sermon on Psalm 1 a couple years ago. We looked at Psalm 2 last week. This week will be Psalm 3, so um, we sort of went in sequence, but then we'll start to go out of sequence. But I wanted us to at least look at 1, 2, and 3 as part of the introduction. So, hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people." Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray to ask his blessing on it. Our God, we thank you that you do give us your word, these ancient words, written at a time when your servant David was in trouble. We ask that you would use it to apply to our lives godliness, holiness, repentance, and faith. Help us, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, next week, Monday, I believe it's next week, Monday, June 6th, uh, whichever day June 6th of the week is, is the anniversary of D-Day, whenever the Allied forces invaded and landed on the beaches of Normandy. And because of D-Day, the anniversary of D-Day upcoming, I ran across an article, and I'm going to read a portion of it to you uh, that I found very funny and interesting and amazing. And, you know, these stories that come in wartime and in battle are always Uh, The ones that make it through history are always especially um, noteworthy and interesting. So the first special service brigade was supposed to land on the beach and reinforce British 6th Airborne Division. So the British 6th Airborne Division is there to take the Cane Canal. There's supposed to be a special brigade that comes to reinforce them. Scottish General Simon Fraser was the one in charge. Simon Shimmy Fraser. And so alongside Shimmy, since he's Scottish, was his trusted piper, Billy Millen. Uh, Scottish pipers were commonly used in World War I to play music in battle. But because they were targeted and killed often, there was a policy put in place by the British military that no more pipers in the, you know, the front lines of battle. Well, General Shimmy convinces Millen, probably by the fact that he's a general and Millen's probably not, it was Private Millen. He said, ah, but that's the English War Office. You and I are both Scottish, and that doesn't apply. <laughs> so, the pair were the first to hit the sandy beach. Immediately, Shimin, Shimmy orders Millen, play Highland Laddie. Millen recalls, and this is a quote from him, wounded men were shocked to see me. They had expected to see a doctor or some kind of medical help. Instead, they saw me in my kilt playing the bagpipes. It was horrifying as I felt so helpless. 
A captured German sniper later remembered watching Millen marching back and forth on the beachhead, playing his pipes. And the German sniper recalls, we, we thought he had lost his mind, and they aimed their sights on those who had weapons instead of instruments. Millen told the BBC, I didn't notice I was being shot at. When you're young, you do things you wouldn't dream of doing when you're older. Well, as I read that account, and as I read Psalm 3, when David says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I thought, David sounds like he could play the bagpipes marching along the beaches of Normandy without fear. Now, this, that snippet of the battle scene, it made me think of Psalm 3. And uh, if you look at the way Psalm 1, 2, and 3 sort of, you could say, go together or transition, Psalm 1 and 2 sort of function as the big introduction to the Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. There's an emphasis on being in the law of God. And then Psalm 2, you have sort of the overarching reign of God. Even though the nations come against God and his anointed, his anointed, Jesus Christ, will conquer. And then Psalm 3, I find, is an interesting contrast. One and two are like this macro view of life, of God's anointed, of the Psalms. Now, as Psalm 3 zooms in on an individual, what does the life of God's anointed look like? David is on the run. This is the life of God's anointed. This is the life of one who trusts in him, who, who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked. Psalm 3 is like, you know, the life of the godly is going to be tough. But what David notices, what David realizes, he can have no fear in the face of this because he knows that God alone delivers us from our enemies. And so that's what I want you to see through this passage today, is that God alone delivers us from our enemies. First, we see this in verses 1 and 2 as David describes the enemies of the deliverer, his enemies. Now we get special context in this psalm. Not every psalm do we get this. But remember that that first line in your Bibles that says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son, that is a part of the original text of Scripture. So that provides intentional context to what is going on here. So, in the context of David's life, what's going on? Well, his son Absalom has turned the hearts of the nation against him. Absalom sat at the gate, and when people would come with a request of David, Absalom would say, well, you know, King David's awfully busy. I'll hear your request, and I'll help you. Oh, if only I were king. And so the scripture tells us in other places that, you know, Absalom says, if only I were judge in the land, and Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. I mean, imagine if you in your workplace, uh, whether you're a supervisor or whether, you're, whether it's just a co-worker, imagine if someone was like, well, the, the, the boss can't really take care of that for you. You can, I'll help you. I mean, wouldn't this place be so much better if, if I was in charge? I mean, maybe they don't say those types of words exactly, but you've probably experienced people who have sort of a undermining intention. They, they want to be in charge, and that is what Absalom is doing or has done 
And it's resulted in the people turning against David and chasing after him. So these enemies, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. They are numerous and they are close. They are close because it is Absalom, his very own son, who's turned against him. There's a guy named Ahithophel, who is David's own counselor, who has sided with Absalom and turned against David. His enemies are from his inner circle. And not are they just close, but they are numerous. How many are my foes? It's estimated, well, the scripture actually records, there's at least 20,000 in the army that is after David. The size of the Colorado National Guard is one-fifth of that. So uh, five times the strength of the Colorado National Guard is on a manhunt for one guy to go get his head. How numerous are my foes. And they're not just numerous, they're not just close, they are mocking. Verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. This is it's heart piercing to him. They are saying, of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. God is a liar. Yeah, sure, God promised David that one of his offspring, that his throne would be forever, that one of his offspring will sit on the throne forever in 2 Samuel 7, but it's not going to happen. There's no deliverance for David, and therefore there's no deliverance through David from the offspring that is supposed to come from David. And Christ experienced this as well. Looking at Jesus on the cross, as people stand around mocking him, think about how David's, the mocking that David received is reflected even as Christ is on the cross. He saved others. He can't save himself. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. They're mocking the deliverer himself. Now, I want you to see, as we look at the nature of David's enemies, uh, uh, and even the enemies of Christ, his inner circle, right? Judas, one of his disciples, the, the, the number of them, the closeness of them, I want you to realize that the nature of your enemies in your life is the same. The nature of your enemies is the same as David and of Christ. Number one, what can we expect? We may be able to expect overt mocking, you know, and that happens more and more now as the culture becomes comfortable with being more vocally and overtly anti-Christian. We experience an overt mocking. There's no deliverance in that Savior. You need a different source of salvation, and they will point to anything other than the Savior and mock the one who is the Savior. Now, you can be thankful for the type of enemies that you don't have, right? You don't currently, yet, we'll see, <laughs> you don't currently have the type of enemies that are seeking to cut your head off literally, at least not in your immediate vicinity. We can be thankful that as we read this, man, David is on the run because they want to actually kill him. We get to gather publicly Sunday after Sunday, and even other days of the week, without great fear of physical harm. Now, we know that that can be taken away, and there are other nations where it is very legal to pursue, persecute, imprison, kill Christians. Maybe that will come for us one day, but we can be thankful that we have the gift 
that we do right now, to not have an enemy precisely like David. But be aware of the type of enemies that you do have. So, uh, a different, uh, let's see, this is, I don't know, five or six years ago maybe, we were at Disney World in Florida at the fake beach, and we're getting our stuff, you know, out of the, out of the bag, and we're sitting there on the recliners, and there's a lady next to us. So there's a lady and a family next to us, and there's also just began to write in the sky a plane, doing the sky writing. I don't know how it works. The aviators in here might know how that works. But so there's a plane writing in the sky, and everybody sitting on the ground is watching to see what this plane is going to write. And slowly but surely, the plane writes Jesus in the sky. It's like, okay, this is some sort of, you know, Christian message probably. So he writes Jesus, and then the number four. And then, of course, I knew where it was going from there. And we see Jesus forgives. And that was the message written in the sky. Now, this is not to speak to the efficacy of skywriting evangelism. But... It was still true, the message was there, and the lady sitting next to us in the beach recliner said, Jesus forgives, forgives me for what? And you could hear in her voice the blatant mocking and disregard for the simple truth of the message that was in the sky. And I thought, you know, this is a, a message of mockery. This is an, an enemy, and now, I, you know, of course, we pray for them, we evangelize to them. We pray for those who persecute us, but this is the speech of the type of enemy that is in your midst. Not one that is seeking your head, one that is seeking your heart. Your enemies want to turn your affections away from God. And we Remember we looked at the affection that we should have for Christ last week, the, the love that we should have as we kiss the Son. They want to turn those affections away to anything else. There's no salvation in that, God. You need a different one. Well, what is David's response? As he responds, his focus is actually on the one that they're mocking. His focus is on the deliverer in verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David describes God as a shield round about him. Now, it's interesting. A shield is just one thing, and a shield actually doesn't go around the whole person, right? But David describes God as a shield round about him. And I thought about ancient battle formations, whether it's the Greeks with their phalanx, the Romans had a tortoise formation where the Roman soldiers would line up together in the front with shields all next to one another, and then they would place, people behind them would place shields on top. So it was a tortoise, the Roman tortoise formation, so that nothing was able to penetrate from the front and no arrows were able to get in from the top. And I thought about that as I see David describing God as a shield that is round about him, that he is sort of encapsulated within this shield of God. He describes God that the Lord is his glory, my glory and the lifter of my head. David derives his value from God. That is what he means whenever he says my glory. My weightiness is the sort of literal translation of that word glory from Hebrew to English. God is my 
weightiness, my glory. He's could, in fact, be reflecting upon God's words, or I should say, uh, yeah, God's words to Abram in Genesis 15. Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield. I am a shield to you and your very great reward. All of David's boasting, all of David's glory is in God. And so I want to challenge you from where, and ask you, from where do you derive your weightiness? From where do you derive your value, your glory? That is what David is speaking about here. There are all kinds of places, all kinds of places, aren't there, in our world that, from which the world tries to derive value. I am valuable because I have this position. I am valuable and weighty because I have this level of authority. I'm valuable and weighty because I have this skill, this ability. This is where I derive my value, my glory. But David says, God, you are my glory. It is not worldly status. It's not wealth. It's not anything else. God is the lifter of my head. Now, directly contrary to the mocking idea that there's, there's no deliverance for you, David says, yes, there is. You are the lifter of my head. The idea David's communing, communicating here is that God is his restorer. That as David's head is bowed down right now, God will lift his head and restore him. And God actually does. David ends up restored back to the throne. And this is even here a little picture as David is restored to the throne, that's just, you know, a temporary, a temporal restoration, right? But Christ himself is, though he is bowed down in death, he is lifted, he is restored, as it were. Jesus Christ's head is lifted to the right hand of God the Father as he is resurrected. And this is the beginnings of an echo that will become at full volume at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, remember this, as you get cast down and out, because remember what I said at first, this is the life, this is a pattern, not, not a, well, it could be a long-term pattern in a believer's life, but a believer's not life is not a bed of roses. Christ said, as they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Blessed are you when they do it. Blessed are you when they revile you. But as it happened to me, as it happened to the king of the kingdom, it will happen to the citizens of the kingdom. But remember that as you are cast down and out, whatever that looks like for you, whatever the difficulty, the trouble, the affliction, whoever the enemy is, you might be cast down and out, but God will restore you. That's what David is saying here. You are the lifter of my head, and God is the lifter of your head. You might be cast down and out, but God will restore you. Well, God is David's glory, his value. He is his restorer, the lifter of my head. And God is an answerer. As David looks to the deliverer, to the protection of the deliverer, part of it is because God answers prayer. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David is saying, God is accessible and reliable. God can hear me. He is accessible, and he answers me. 
He is reliable. Now, when David says, I, he answered me from his holy hill, think about David being on the run. He is out, far outside the walls of Jerusalem. Wherever he's at, we don't know exactly at this point, but David is on the run. And what David, the language David chooses to use here is, is this. I prayed aloud, and God answered me from Jerusalem. He answered me from his holy hill. That's what David is saying whenever he says he answered me uh, from his holy hill. It's Jerusalem. God can hear me from his presence. Of course, Jerusalem, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, this was God's special manifestation, his special place of presence on the earth. God can hear me no matter where I'm at. He is accessible. I prayed, and he heard me all the way in Jerusalem where his presence is at. And we see this actually actually come to pass, as, since we have all this historical context behind the psalm, we know that David prayed a prayer, and he said, I pray you make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. So remember, David's enemies are close. It includes Absalom, his son. It includes Ahithophel, one of his close counselors. And David says, I pray you make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. And God actually does. Ahithophel gives Absalom good advice. He says, you need to take 12,000 troops and you need to take them tonight and go kill David right away. Cut, cut him off quickly. And Absalom turns to a different counselor who is actually David's insider. And David's insider, Hushai, says, well, well, hold on, Absalom. You don't need to take, you shouldn't go, you, you shouldn't send 12,000 guys right now. What you should do is gather up a whole bunch more people, and then you need to go with them yourself. And the scripture tells us, the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. So Absalom, uh, David's prayer is answered as God thwarts the good counsel of Ahithophel, uh, which was to go get David quickly, and Absalom chooses to delay, to gather a whole bunch more troops, and go himself, which ends up in his demise, as we'll see a bit later. Well, David looks to God for deliverance as his protector. And when I challenge you, what do you look to for deliverance? David looks to God, but so often, don't we, don't we look elsewhere? What do you try and substitute for the deliverance of God? Now, let me get a little bit more rubber meets the road, some practical examples. What is it that you look to that will deliver you or ease a circumstance for you that is not God? Is it a glass of liquor? Is it a pill? Is it a video game controller? Is it a family member? Is it some relationship? Is it some amount of, oh, I just need to relax, and then this will be the ease that I need? Is it some sort of recreation of which we have a lot of opportunity for around here? I mean, the draw to Colorado, what is it? Skiing, hiking, and everybody is seeking in some sense, in some level, deliverance in this recreation. Now, don't get me wrong, 
there's a right place for all the things that I've just mentioned. But are they becoming a substitute for the deliverance that God provides? So be careful and think about those things, those things that become mini-gods, that this will shield me, this will relieve me for this moment. Those are the things that are becoming a substitute for the deliverance and restoration that God provides. And remember this, God's answer from his holy hill, the answer from God's presence, when you cry out to him, that answer is closer, more accessible than any other thing or person that you could reach out to. No matter how close it is, no matter how close that thing is, no matter how close that person is, God's answer is closer, more accessible than them. Now, he'll use those people and things around you to help you, um, but there is an appropriate place for them under God, not in place of him. God is accessible and reliable, and he's the only one able to deliver. And because of that, David has peace. I've got this problem, but God, you are my deliverer and restorer. And so because of that, next section, we see the peace of the deliverer. Because of this, David has peace. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David can get a normal night's sleep in the midst of a very abnormal situation. Could you imagine being on the run with tens of thousands of people after you and being able to sleep, a good night's sleep? I mean, I think of how often that we have, that I have, that one thing, you know, what's that one thing in your mind that's festering, that's keeping you from sleeping? It's that, that thing that someone said at work, or that thing that you failed to do, or that thing that someone said to you at school, and it just, it drills down like a nail, and then begins to, its, it's black tendrils begin to spread, and it just festers and keeps you awake. What David is saying is that it's possible for those things to happen and to still be at peace. David has peace despite many thousands that are around him. He says God is his sustainer. Now what are other things that we see as our sustainer? What, well, what is a sustainer? Something that keeps you afloat, even as maybe Peter was kept afloat as he walked on the water. What is it that keeps you afloat? Is it your finances? Is it your job? Or is it God? Now, God uses those things, but the fact is, and this is related to God being our glory. If we were our own sustainers, then we deserve the glory. But if God is our sustainer, then God deserves the glory. And so you see, his glory is based upon his grace, that because he is the sustainer, giving unmerited favor to keep you afloat, sustaining the world, providing repentance in Jesus, this is what brings him glory because he's our sustainer. Well, the Lord delivers peace. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now what I want you to notice here is that God doesn't take away the enemies. He does, but he doesn't at this very moment. 
God delivers peace in the midst of a circumstance, he will not necessarily take away the circumstance. So you pray, God, deliver me from this affliction. And that's a good and fine prayer, and God may. But Lord, even if this continues for an indefinite period of time, give me peace in the midst of it. David is on the run from thousands of people, and he doesn't end up delivered for a while, but he can sleep in the middle of it. So remember that. We may not be delivered immediately, temporally, from our afflictions, but God can deliver peace in the midst of it. It's part of God's deliverance to David, and it's part of his deliverance to you. Well, this protection and peace that David has, it comes about because the Lord executes justice in his deliverance. And that's what we see in the last section, verse 7 and 8, the justice of the deliverer. That God has this protection and peace because God executes justice in his deliverance. So first in verse 7, we see that God, he executes justice upon his enemies. As David cries out and says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Now, just as my enemies have arisen, many are rising against me, verse 1. God, would you arise to meet them? Would you arise, O Lord, save me, my God? God's enemies are stricken. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. I always, this is a verse of imprecation. A verse in which the psalmist is saying, God, arise and defeat my enemies. Break them. Would you stop them? And there is a place in which the Christian can pray for that. Now, Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you, right? We do that, but we can simultaneously pray for them and pray against them. That is a principle that we see clearly in the Psalms. God, arise and defeat them. You know, think about especially the enemies who are rising against Christians in different parts of the world that really are seeking to kill them. God, let them see by their pursuance of Christians, would, would you make them like Saul and knock them off their horse and, and see your salvation? But Lord, if it's not in your will that they are saved, Lord, stop them from persecuting your church. Destroy them. Now, we have to be careful. We don't get unrighteous anger, but there is a righteous indignation that we can have that reflects the righteous indignation of God. You strike my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And this, this does end up happening. Again, our historical context behind this psalm. Absalom has listened to the intentionally foolish counsel of Hushai, waited, and gone out to pursue David with more men, and he goes himself. And we know from the scripture that Absalom is riding his horse, and Absalom has this enviable head of hair, especially enviable. <laughs> Absalom has this enviable head of hair so much that the scripture actually records its weight. Not too many people, I think he might be the only one, who has the weight of his hair recorded. Absalom hair is so thick and heavy, and as he's riding his horse, I find irony here, as David described God as the lifter of his head, Absalom is riding his horse, 
and Absalom's hair is caught in the branches of a tree and his head is lifted off of the horse. He is suspended in the air, available for the skewering, which then happens. God struck his enemy on the cheek, broke his teeth, so to speak. This is a language of destruction. As they've scoffed at the Lord and seek the destruction of God's people, so God will destroy them. But I also want you to see that the strong arm, the same strong arm that strikes God's enemies, is the same strong arm that delivers his enemies. God delivers those who were once his enemies from his own wrath by executing his justice upon the deliverer who is Jesus Christ himself. Instead of breaking my teeth, instead of breaking your teeth, he broke Jesus Christ. That is why the language that is in the scriptures is this. He was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. David is delivered from his temporal afflictions because he has eternal deliverance in Christ. That eternal deliverance in Christ, then that future eternity sort of has a a precursor or a, a, an echo backward, whatever you want to call it, a foreshadowing, this ultimate deliverance that God provides in Jesus Christ is reflected in David's temporal deliverance. And it's the exact same in our lives. We have an eternal, we, we have an eternal deliverance that is provided because God's justice is executed upon Jesus Christ. That now Instead of being fearful and terrified of the wrath of the justice of God, now all of those attributes work to our benefit. That his justice was upon Christ. That he is now my shield. That he defends me from enemies, whether, whether they're seeking my head or whether they're seeking my heart, whatever it is. Well, God will execute his justice. And I ask you, Will it be executed upon you, or has it been executed upon a substitute? That's the question for every person, no matter what age you are, no matter what period of life and time you are, God promises to strike his enemies on the cheek. Will he strike you, or has Jesus Christ been struck for you? Because he is the only deliverer. And also remember this, your salvation is not your own doing. That's what David closes with. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. All of this is God's work. He, though Adam fell, God provides a promise. Instead of crushing Adam like he should, or not like he should, instead of crushing Adam like he could have justly done, he says, I will send a seed to crush the head of the serpent, even though his heel will be bruised. That's the promise of Jesus Christ, contrary to what Adam deserved. Contrary to all of the sins of all the people. Remember, David, Abraham, Moses, every single one of them. The scripture does not whitewash its believers. 
Believers are failing, fall, faulty, frail people. God continues to provide grace in spite of their failures. David's circumstance, God, God is going to deliver David. But this circumstance was brought about by David's sin. Because David committed adultery with Bathsheba, God says, I'm going to rise up enmity from within your own household. The sword is going to come from within because of the heinousness of your sin. This is the result of it. But God continues to provide salvation. And I just uh, partially close with this. Don't we see this in our own lives? Despite all of the times that we continue to stumble and fall and trip over ourselves every single time, it helps us see that every time we fall, God really has to be the one to get me up. God really has to be the one to deliver me. If it was on me, I would just, con- I would just not only fall, but probably just remain lying on the ground in my own sin. That reminded me of quote from Charles Spurgeon, actually. When we talk about our enemies, he said this. Oh, man, I forgot it. Where is it? Beware of no man more than yourself. We carry our own worst enemies within us. As we talk about all of the external enemies that we might need deliverance from, what is one of the greatest enemies that we need deliverance from? our own sin, our own heinousness, our own hearts. God will deliver you even from that. He will. He's doing it, the work right now, but he will eventually deliver you permanently at the return of Jesus Christ. Well, I was at a funeral uh, several years ago while I was in seminary, and it was the funeral for one of the seminary professors, Dr. McGoldrick, and uh, not, not for him, I'm sorry, for his wife who had passed away. He was, at that time, I think he was 82 or 83, teaching church history, sharp as a tack, dry wit, hilarious guy. Uh, but his wife was ill and passed away. And he got up at her funeral, stood in the pulpit. He wasn't preaching, but he was doing a, I guess you could call it a, a partial eulogy, Anyway, he read this. He read this from Heidelberg Catechism number one, which many of you have heard, but I'll read it. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Dr. McGoldrick finished reading that at his wife's funeral, and he said, people, if you believe this, If you really believe what I just read from the Heidelberg Catechism number one, it will put iron in your blood and steel in your spine. You will be able to face anything. Whether it is a spiritual attack, whether it is a physical one, 
whether it is a disease or affliction, this will put iron in your blood and steel in your spine. And don't we hear that in the voice of David in this psalm? Despite everything around him, he is iron in his blood and steel in his spine because God alone is his deliverer and his salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we are weak and frail. We commit many sins, even as David did, resulting in chastisement, resulting in discipline from you, as we see risen up in his own household with Absalom. But you are our deliverer, Lord. You lift us up in spite of our tripping over our own selves, in spite of us committing the many sins that we do. We ask, Lord, that you would give us confidence in the face of the enemies who are external to us, We ask, Lord, that you would also deliver us from the worst enemy that is truly within us, that is our own sin. Lord, would you forgive us, but would you strengthen us? Would you give us peace in the midst of our many afflictions, whether they be spiritual, whether they be physical, that even if you do not deliver us from the circumstance or the affliction, that you would give us peace in the midst of it, that we can sleep even in the midst of many thousands who surround us. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.